Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of CanadaLand is brought to you by ND.ca, the Canadian-made mattress-in-a-box company. Go to nd.ca slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand to get $50 off of a Canadian-made mattress that is already the most excellently priced quality mattress in a box you can buy. That is nd.ca slash CanadaLand, promo code CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by a different app, Lyft. Lyft is the rideshare app that is preferred by drivers and passengers because it is more safe and friendly and because it is committed to affecting positive change for the future of our cities. Try this out if you live in the GTA. That is the first Canadian market that Lyft is operating in. You will get 15 bucks towards your first ride using Lyft when you download Lyft and use the offer code CanadaLand. You can also get your 15 bucks by going to lyft.com slash invite slash CanadaLand. Terms and conditions apply. Lyft, it matters how you get there. Thank you.
if you are former conservative Senator Lynn Bayak, former conservative candidates Tim Dutod, Blair Dale, and Jules Gibord, former convict Conrad Black, or former indigenous person Joseph Boyden, you probably wish you had never heard the name Robert Jago. I had never heard that name until the last federal election in 2015, when some random political blog, that's actually what it was called, some random political blog, started digging up dirt on one Harper candidate after the next. Stupid comments on social media about women and minorities, dumb stuff that was sitting there in plain sight. Anybody could have found it. The Conservative Party could have found it when they were vetting their candidates. The media could have found it when they were supposedly vetting these same candidates. But they all missed this stuff. And Robert Jago found it. He found it on his computer from his home in Montreal. And he blogged about it. The media ran with it. Sometimes taking credit for it. And the Conservatives tossed their tainted candidates under the bus one after the next. Jago did not do this because he was offended by the candidate's online behavior. He did not do this because he wanted to inform the public about them. He did it, he told McLean's magazine, because he wanted the conservatives to lose, so that the liberals would win, so that we could have electoral reform in Canada, a campaign promise that Justin Trudeau was running on at the time, and which, as prime minister, he very quickly abandoned. Nevertheless, Robert Jago has continued muckraking in his spare time. The guy has a full-time career in education. Jago broke the Joseph Boyden scandal at the same time as APTN, exposing the ways in which the famous novelist had misrepresented his own heritage. And most recently, Robert Jago dug up the racist emails posted by Senator Lynn Bayak on her government website, which resulted in her getting kicked out of the conservative caucus by Andrew Scheer. Not bad for a hobby. But perhaps the biggest surprise Robert Jago had for us is that he is a shit-hot writer. His mode is the polemic. As an essayist, he is highly weaponized, springing fully formed onto the pages of The Walrus, where he is now a columnist, The Globe and Mail, The National Post, CBC Opinion, all of which he's contributed to, and Canada Land, who published him first. Along with writers like Chelsea Vowell, Daniel Heath Justice, and Erica Violet Lee, Jago represents the rise of an uncompromising, surgically incisive, incendiary Indigenous intellectual voice in Canada. I won't call it a new movement, I suspect that these voices have been around for a while, but the wider awareness of them and the regular publication of their work in the mainstream press, this is something new. As one journalist, Andrew Curiata, remarked, Robert Jago is making a strong case for a position as the most vital writer in Canada right now. But who the hell is he? Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Sean Foy, Pat Fish, Cullen Bird, Warren McDougald, Caitlin Fallow, Robert Balfour, Claire Wilkening, and Marcus Elia. My name is Marcus, and I'm a teacher near Peterborough, Ontario, and I support Canada Land because its programs are at the forefront of questioning and dismantling the white patriarchy in our home on Native land. This episode is brought to you by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. 
And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by our new mattress sponsor, Endy. Here is what I can tell you about Endy. They are a Canadian mattress in a box company. Since their launch in 2015, they've become the leading online sleep brand in Canada. They are headquartered in Toronto, and they are not just appealing to your sense of patriotism. They are appealing to your sense of value because they are Canadian, because they don't have to pay customs and shipping, because they use all Canadian materials. They can offer you a top quality mattress for less than any of the other players. $675 to $950 Canadian, less than that actually with our promo code, All of that without sacrificing quality. They have the same deal that others offer where they'll send the thing to you for free, let you try it out for 100 nights. If you don't like it, you send it back. They give it to a charity. They have the highest rate of customer satisfaction, the lowest rate of returns. That's what I can tell you about ND.ca. Here's what I can't tell you, whether or not I like sleeping on one. And the reason is I don't have one, and apparently I'm not getting one. Everyone else here at Canada Land is getting one. Everyone who wants one. Hadia and Ryan are getting one. Aaliyah is getting one. Even people who aren't on the air are getting mattresses, everybody who wants one but me. And the reason for that is that because I have endorsed a different mattress in the past, my endorsement, my experience is thought to be somehow tainted and unreliable, like I can't like two mattresses. I might like their mattress more. I don't personally understand that. I don't see why liking a mattress I've had in the past means that I can't like a mattress that I get now. Maybe I'll like it even more. I don't know why that's not credible, but I'll have to find out from other people what they think of their Andy mattresses. In any event, you will get get $50 off of their already lowest in class prices when you go to ND, that is E-N-D-Y dot C-A and use the promo code CanadaLand. Check it out, have a look, order a mattress risk-free. And if you like it, tell me all about it because I don't know myself. ND.ca. This episode of CanadaLand is also brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks. It is 
is tax time. It is FreshBooks time. It is time to get all of your affairs in order, or if you use FreshBooks to press a button, a button that will generate a report that you either feed into your tax return or give to your accountant. This is when I am most grateful and glad as a small business owner that I have FreshBooks, which basically just functions as my accounting department. It saves me time throughout the year as well. And now I'm almost in this kind of like predominantly FreshBooks economy where people invoice me, they use FreshBooks and we use FreshBooks. Everything is compatible and everything is running much, much better. It is becoming the industry standard. It is stupidly simple to use. It gets you paid much, much quicker. You can link it to your bank account and anything else. It is just growing in its toolkit, in its functionality, and its compatibility with other things. It is becoming more and more powerful, but they have found in their new redesign a way to keep it as simple to use as ever as it can do more things than ever before. Freelancers, entrepreneurs, try this. You may think that you have the invoice thing covered because you are able to make an invoice. Hey, who isn't? but you are not necessarily aware of all of the efficiencies and all the ways that this is going to make your life easier. It costs you nothing to give it a whirl for 30 days. You don't even need a credit card when you go to freshbooks.ca slash CanadaLand. But if you do decide to stick with it, as so many people do, over 5 million in the world, tell them that CanadaLand sent you and you'll be doing this show a favor. That's freshbooks.ca slash CanadaLand. Tell them CanadaLand sent you. Quick note that the interview you are about to hear was recorded before Gerald Stanley was declared not guilty of murder or manslaughter or anything for his killing of Colton Bushy. We do not discuss the Stanley Bushy case in this episode, but Robert Jago has written about the verdict, and you can read that piece on either the Media Indigena website, where it originally appeared, or on Canada Land, where we have published a slightly extended version of that article. Hi, Robert. Hi there. You know, doing some research on your biography, it's brought some surprises. I did not know that you used to write for the Western Standard. Uh, Would it be fair to say then that you used to work for Ezra Levant? That would not be fair at all. That would absolutely not be fair at all. In spite of what he has said that one time, I worked for Peter Jaworski in the libertarian iteration of the Western Standard afterwards. Okay. Um, In fact, I went out of my way to talk to Peter. I just saw him like last weekend, I think, Um, just to confirm that Ezra had no relationship to the magazine at the time. And that is the case. I can understand your desire to make that as clear as possible. But you do have, uh, this isn't like accusatory, I'm just curious. In McLean's interview, you identified yourself as a libertarian and, and talked about having volunteered for three different Tory campaigns. But you also say that you volunteered for the NDP, so I don't know what the hell's going on. Can you enlighten me? Yeah, and the Trotskyists, too. Okay. (laughs) So. Yeah, you get around. Yeah, I'm exploratory with politics. I mean, with the Tories, that's probably where I went the furthest in a party. Like, I was invited to join the board of the party in Toronto Centre. Like, I was at a board table across the table from Barbara McDougall, you know, in those, like, nice garden parties in Rosedale, that kind of, like, Tory party. Yeah, okay. So I was doing pretty well there. But then, you know, I had just come back to the country, and I was just getting back into things. And there were a couple of really good Native candidates who I thought were really good Native candidates at the time that I was working for. And I had high hopes for them. And then it was just disappointment after disappointment. And then I just realized I was a sucker again, um, like I was with the NDP before, and um, quit the party. Well, actually, I quit the party after I had this one experience driving back from a Harper event. 
And the person in the car who was driving me just kept, she was a party worker, but uh, started going off about how Obama was a secret Muslim. And then I just, I realized these people are crazy. Yeah. And I just left. Yeah. It seems like it's like a history of being disappointed. I mean, even in your more recent iteration, like I first heard of you during the 2015 federal election when your your research and blogging took down three conservative candidates. And when you were asked why you did that, and I thought like you totally surprised me why, why you did that. I mean, I thought you could do that because you're like a prankster who's just like, you know, hey, I'm causing trouble. You could do that because you're a partisan. You know, you could do that as a journalist to try to inform the public and what happens happens. You had a very explicit project. You were like, I am taking these guys down because I want electoral reform Hmm. and the conservatives are not for that. So I want to help a party get in that will affect electoral reform. Hmm. How did that work out for you? Uh, It was a massive disappointment. I mean, it's amazing that you succeeded in taking those three candidates out to this end that was then just totally abandoned by Trudeau. I think more than three. Oh, Um, okay. Um, Sorry. But I mean, regardless of the number. Yes, it was a massive disappointment. I wrote an article on it for The Walrus about some of that disappointment and the depths of that disappointment, not just on electoral reform, but also on like indigenous issues, which was a separate thing as well. I think what I said, it was a crushing betrayal. I'm pretty sure that I don't know how I'm voting in the next election. Like I would, I would almost vote BQ. I don't, given your biography, I don't know how you're going to vote either. Um, I'm just trying to figure you out. And right now I'm talking to you. I'm in Toronto. You're in Montreal. You're at work and work for you mm-hmm. is an educational services firm. Mm-hmm. What is an educational services firm? We manage uh, regulatory compliance in relation to cooperative education programs and practicum programs and internship programs for universities, for private universities and colleges across the country, and then some as well abroad. So I, uh, I do paperwork most of the day in order to meet government requirements. Dude, who are you? Here, okay, you've asked that before and you said some nobody. Mm. Okay, so before you answer the question this time, you said I'm some nobody. Here's what other people have called you. Libertarian, anti-green party, pro-conservative, anti-conservative, pro-NDP, activist, agitator, muckraker, blogger, educational services provider, essayist with a hit list, guy who's taken down conservative candidate after conservative candidate, also a conservative senator, and one internationally celebrated pretendian novelist. That's a lot of descriptives for some nobody. It is. I'm a busy body nobody. Do you know what? Like, if you talk about disappointment, like, my first big disappointment, I mean, after working for the NDP, was Canada. Like, I just got sick of it, and I left. Uh-huh. I thought I was emigrating, so I was away for, like, three or four or five years or something. But what I discovered abroad was that I really hated being on the sidelines of everything, not being able to be involved or have a legitimate voice in what was going on around me. You know, it wasn't like a full life, like a real life to not be able to say what I want and have it like be taken seriously. So that's the main reason I came back to Canada. Where had you been? Ireland, then Egypt, then Italy. I mean, for the most part, I'm around Milan and stuff like that. I mean, it was a good life, you know, like weekends in the Alps, weekends on the Riviera. I don't know, but it sounds nice. Yeah, nights in Milan. And I worked for the paramilitary, so I couldn't get in trouble. It was great. What? Okay. (laughs) So it was a fantastic life, but I wasn't involved with anything. I wasn't part of it. And there was so much politics going on then. It was like the start of the war. Um, Berlusconi was in power. There were protests every day. And I could march in the protests, like I could blend in, but I wasn't really a part of it and didn't really belong. That's part of why I came back here. So I come back and then 
I mean, I'm living my life the same as I live my life there in terms of business and all of that other stuff. But the only difference is, is that I feel like I have this obligation or this need to be politically involved. And that's sort of what I've done. I tried to do it through parties and then I realized those were terrible. I'm just not a partisan. I'm not a deep in the soul partisan. I just, it's embarrassing to be one. So this is what I've done. I've just picked a few issues that I care about, fewer and fewer each year, and focused on those in whichever way I can. You know, for somebody who got tired of Canada, Canada is uh, a pretty big concern of yours. I mean, most of us are sick of Canada and just disengage. (laughs) You know, like politics is not our national pastime. You are like deeply involved with the biggest issues in this country. I want to back up from politics, though, because I'm still just... I've never met anybody like you. That might sound, that can be read positively or negatively, but I think that's just a statement of fact. Like, can you give me some kind of biographical sketch of who you are? Uh, Lived in the suburbs, very poor family. My dad was a jailbird and my mom was a house cleaner before she became a chef. We moved to Rez. Uh, I ended up being homeless for a while. Then I just sort of worked up from there. That's the basics. Where'd you learn how to write so well? (laughs) I have amazingly good editors who, if it weren't for them, I would sound even more pretentious and even more rambling. I would sound like Rex Murphy if it weren't for like my editors. So that's where good writing comes from. Where'd you learn how to research people and find things that the media can't? That's a few things. Number one is that I don't have normal like people reactions to stuff. So I need to really study people kind of hard in order to figure out what they're thinking and how to act properly around them. So I've become a pretty good study of people. In addition to that, as part of my job, I've interviewed probably 2000 people for preparation for their placement. So I've got a good idea of personality. I can suss people really quickly now. But in terms of IT skills, it comes from international sales. So I do a lot of competitor research. You have to do competitor research and, and I like to do it well. So I research on how to do research well. And that's where that's come from. Competitor research taught you how to do opposition research. Yeah, actually taught me how to do opposition research better than researchers do because they are poor at it. I've read the recent vetting materials that the PCs put out. You know, they're going to be blindsided in the next election. They are missing so many obvious ways to detect issues and to prevent issues from arising. You know, I was impressed and it was a proof of concept of something that I find to be like a really inspiring kind of uh, pattern, I suppose, or practice that anybody anywhere can do this kind of thing, you know, like it's just Mm -hmm. out there in the open for anyone to sort through a candidate's past, to sort through things people have said, to see if they're trying to fool or mislead or if there's something in there. And it doesn't matter if you have a huge social media following or if you're being published by a big news organization. If you just put it out there, it, I hope this doesn't sound like Pollyannish or naive or something like the truth is really, really powerful. It's contagious. It gets bigger and bigger. It comes to the attention of people with bigger, they they signal boosted and people can come after you and attack you and they do, Mm. but like, okay, you attacked some nobody, but meanwhile, what about this thing he found? And Mm -hmm. it catches up with these people. And, you know, we saw what happened with Bayak. I mean, that was something that everybody else missed, you know, and then the question is, becomes not who is Robert Jago to say these things, but is this okay with us? Is this okay with us that a senator is publishing these hateful, bigoted points of view? And then next thing you know, she's out of the conservative caucus. And it just feels like Hmm. I'm watching something happen that should happen. Right. I'm inspired by that. Other people, 
not so much. And you've caught a lot of hell from people who see this as purely a destructive and angry person who's trying to take people down. I mean, you, you have to be familiar with that description of yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you know, I don't see people saying that about Andrew Kaczynski at CNN with K-File. He does the exact same thing. It's something that should be happening. There should be like a Canadian K-File inside of BuzzFeed or inside of CBC or The Star or somewhere. You know, I mean, he is doing the exact same thing, but he's doing it with a team of four people. And he's not just looking at the people who are running for office, but he's also looking at advisor appointments, ambassador appointments. I mean, like, no one looks at this stuff in Canada. I mean, for God's sakes, if you look at who the ambassadors are right now, there's one whose most recent job was working for Agacon, the Agacon Foundation, which I think is kind of, it's something that would be interesting to look into. That sounds like a news story, Robert. Yeah. I mean, she's the ambassador to Jamaica, if you want to look closely, but there's a lot of that at all these levels. Who is a deputy minister? Name a deputy minister. And K-File in the States at CNN looks at these, and in Canada, we don't. And it's not a destructive thing. Um, I had this prof who is now with the Fraser Institute. His name is Alex Moens. And he made the strongest, most convincing case when I was in university that the most important thing in politics is character. And it is true because, I mean, I voted for Trudeau on policy. You know, I wanted certain policies, but I had questions about his character, which is why... You know, during the leadership race, I voted for Joyce Murray because I trust her character more than his character. And that's really what it comes down to is that it's who is going to have the guts to stand their ground and follow through on their promises. Who's going to be there? Who's going to be the same person in office when, you know, something like Trump happens and, and you need somebody who's strong on your side? And that's all about character. And it's important to look into that. And that's not destructive. That's what you're supposed to do in politics. And that's what they know in every other country. This is stuff that people have looked into. You know, the only way you could say it's destructive is if you compare it to those sorts of social media swarms against some person who posts some homophobic thing or some racist thing. If they're not in a position of trust, if they're not selling their character, then, then yeah, that is destructive. And I don't agree with that, really. But... If it's these roles where this is what they're selling, this is someone who's going to have power over you, this is the person who's going to be in committee vetting laws that are going to apply to you, then character matters and looking into it is fair. I mean, there actually have been some journalists who've taken shots at you, which they're taking shots at the profession itself, because like you say, with politicians, character matters. But Joseph Boyden's not a politician. Why was it important for you that people know that he was misrepresenting his identity and his ancestry and, and his membership to indigenous communities. I, I received a package of information about him hmm. similar to what you ultimately brought to light. And, you know, I knew that it was a big story, but I also knew that these issues of whether you're indigenous or not are very sensitive issues within indigenous communities. And I felt like, you know, I'm not the person to break this story. Why did you feel like you were that person? Uh, well, I mean, I know about two or three or four other people, like actors and actresses, who are prominent, who pass themselves off as natives and aren't. And people say, expose this person. And no, it doesn't matter. It's not significant. Boyden is significant because he has the ear of prime ministers. They're listening to him. He's going out there representing our people politically. There's no 
native prime minister. There's no native ambassador to Canada. And he was acting in that role. And people were taking him seriously. He was giving a pass to Canada on certain things. He was saying, let's move past this. This is what reconciliation really is. No, like if he's going to take those political stances and, you know, and represent us as a people, then, then let's treat him like a politician and look into him because he's not supposed to have that role. He doesn't belong there. Now, why would I do it? It's just timing. I was on the at Indigenous XCA Twitter feed. I was scheduled to host it over that period. Tell people what that is, because more people should know about that. Sure. The at Indigenous XCA Twitter feed is managed by Chelsea Vowell, who's a successful Native writer. Uh, Every week, there is a new Native person in there, uh, Inuit, Métis, or First Nations, who goes in there and blogs about issues relevant to them, things that they think are important. So it's a very diverse group. Sometimes it could be very conservative people, very liberal people, very traditionalist people. It could be artists, it could be thinkers, it could be writers. It's all of these things every week, and it gives you a really good snapshot of what Indigenous Canada is actually like. You were the one who had the privilege of tweeting from that account, and you took that opportunity to really push this. Uh, you know, it went from you to APTN to many, many others, but your tweets are what set that all in motion. Yeah, it was us and APTN at the same time. There was sort of, uh, I mean, I had the technical skills. So of, of the people hosting the feed, I'm the, probably the one who had the technical skills to put it together. So I think that's why it landed on me. And it was us and APTN doing it at the same time. And there was some back and forth about who had to put the story out first. And in typical Canadian style, it it was us saying to APTN, you put out the story. And APTN saying, no, you put out the story. And going back and forth over who had to, like, do the story first and then kind of screwed us. And uh, it ended up being on the Twitter feed first. Okay. Usually in journalism anywhere else in the world, you would want to be first. Mm -hmm. Uh, We always want somebody else to go first here to take the burden and and maybe some of the legal heat off. Yes. But uh, that's a whole other episode. You know, it's one thing when you're pissing off conservatives, but you became a target to a lot of Joseph Boyden supporters in Canlit. The the fit that was thrown by everyone, you know, Conrad Yakabuski, this is a lynch mob. There really was the sense that this was some impropriety that could not stand. And in a very different circles, like Canadian arts and letters, lots of very powerful people were very, very upset with you. I just wonder what went through your mind during that whole process and how you took all that criticism? Um, There were two types of criticism. There was criticism from non-Native writers, and there was criticism from Native writers and intellectuals. So the criticism from Native writers and intellectuals, I took that a little bit more seriously because they were more aware of the issues, but I did notice there was kind of a very big generational divide. And so I put a lot of it down to that. I don't understand the older generation that much. You know, the people who are over 60, I don't know where they're coming from. They're too conciliatory, I think. They've been beaten down so much that you could throw them any kind of scraps and they'll take it and be happy with it, I think, which is kind of harsh to say, but whatever. The criticism from Conrad Yakubuski and others. Like many others. Many others, yeah. I don't care. I don't read their books, so it's not going to make me feel bad about, you know, I mean, I like some Canadian writers, and if those Canadian writers came out and said bad stuff about me, then it would, like, hurt my feelings, and I'd have to think twice about it. But uh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to read Margaret Atwood book anyway, so what do I care what she thinks? I think where they're coming from is this Canadian thing that I just don't like, and it's something that kind of sucks about the country. You know, the Quebecois are a tribe. Natives are you know, nations, the tribes. 
we belong to each other, we can be real harsh with each other, and we can call each other out, and it's fine. You know, I'll say something, they'll say something, and we get past it because there's that connection there, that really deep connection that we just have this innate trust with each other. English Canadians aren't a tribe. English Canadians aren't a nation. English Canadians are like strangers on a train. So if you're with like four friends and your friend missed a spot shaving, you can say, hey, buddy, missed a spot shaving. And it's not a big deal. If you go up to a stranger on the train and say it, it's a huge deal. It's a shocking thing to do right? Well, this is what it is in Canada. If you say anything about anybody in the culture, it's like you went up to some stranger on the train and said your pants are tucked into your underpants or something like that. It's like shocking and outrageous. It's a violation of social convention. And that's not on me being aggressive. That's on y'all having like a weak culture, you know? I mean, toughen up a little bit. And I don't know, like if we all belong in the same country, if we're all together, then we could be a little bit harsh with each other sometimes. And it's not the end of the world. I think it's not simply that somebody pointed out that the emperor has no clothes or the pants are sagging. I think there is a certain element of who the hell are you? You know, who the who the hell is this this person to tell us? And the anger and the response I think has something to do with that. On your list of, uh, your growing list of controversies, you wrote for us this satirical obituary of Conrad Black, of Lord Black of Cross Harbor, after he, for the umpteenth time, repeated a series of slanders uh, and historical inaccuracies denigrating Indigenous people. And it was not his slander, but your harsh condemnation of Black. And your hypothetical, like the idea of denigrating him when he's dead, he's not dead. That was a distinction that some people missed. It's one thing to write horrible things about somebody who's just died. But for purposes of satire and effect, you took the conceit that he's dead. And now let's talk about what his life meant. And you said some very, very damning things. And it was that damnation that you would dare to do that, that incited a lot of nasty response from Michael Enright on this show and and from a lot of other people who are like, this is too far. This is in bad taste. And I want to talk about that Canadian idea of bad taste with reference to something that you wrote for us in response, where you said, I will not debate the humanity of First Nations people with anyone. I will not defend it. I will not disprove those people that say we don't belong in this world. I will not ever again. It is not an open question. And no matter how florid the text that surrounds the proposition, it is never civil. It seems like you have in your crosshairs the notion of Canadian civility itself. Um, It's obvious he was insulting us. It's obvious. We know it. Any reader knows it objectively. If I write an article about Black, about his support for Trump, and gratuitously mention in there his prison induction ceremony, what that involves, I'm insulting him. I'm transparently insulting him. It's so obvious to everybody. And it's not his place to reply to my criticism about the prison induction ceremony. It's his place to call me a jerk. That's what you do when somebody insults you. You call them a jerk. You don't reply to the insult and take it seriously. If someone calls you a fugly idiot on the schoolyard, you know, you don't disprove it. You call them a name back. And in Canada, it seems like, you know, within the in-group, if you're doing that towards the out-group, if you're calling them something, then we're supposed to go along with it. But we don't have to 
follow the same social contract as people in that class follow with each other. We don't have to go along with this agreement that we have to take Connor Black seriously, that we have to pretend an insult isn't an insult because it's written with a lot of syllables. Like if somebody calls me you know, a, a greedy Jew, the Canadian thing would be to explain why I'm not in fact greedy. I'm in fact very generous. Uh, no, the answer is fuck you. That would be correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you said that to them, I'm sure it would be a lot easier to take. If um, McGregor, something like that, he did some expose about the recent Ontario PC leader. Glenn McGregor. Right. And, you know, he says that and then opponents come online and say, well, do you remember when he talked about raping Mulroney's daughter, you know, when he ran that contest? That's pretty damn aggressive. But nothing became of it. It didn't blow up. People didn't get enraged. It's just that's how they talk with each other because, you know, they share that culture. They're all friends. They're all chummy. They all go to the same cool events. But if it's from outside, yeah, they can't take it. They could spit it at us, but they're not used to bouncing back. You know, since you were involved in the Joseph Boyden controversy and that turned into the cultural appropriation, the appropriation prize, and you have been consistently writing on indigenous issues. And it's, you know, not to say that electoral reform isn't important. It's very important. But, you know, you're talking about like somewhat wonky policy issue to becoming a critic of Canada in this moment of supposed reconciliation. And for somebody who doesn't do this for a living, you're kind of among this new group of voices. I'm not trying to say that you're like an organized group or anything like that. Like it's a whole new thing for Canada. I think Canada is used to seeing indigenous people present uh, perhaps as protesters. We're used to movements. We're not used to people like you and Chelsea Vowell and, you know, uh, Daniel Heath Justice and many, many others, which is not to say that that didn't exist, but we were not aware of them, who are writers and voices outspoken, unyielding, forthright, and not really looking for minor concessions or minor consideration, but who are really uncompromising. It's so urgent. I'm fascinated by it. And I know nothing about any of these issues before my exposure to it. Do you consider yourself part of something that's happening? And like, can you talk about that progression from going to very specific political issues to being a voice in this I don't want to mischaracterize it, but like this movement, and it's a literary movement, you know, as much as anything else. I think that the thing that you need to remember with people my age, and I'm 40, and Alicia Elliott and them, um, they're all young, they're all 20 to 40. The thing to remember is that for most of us, we're the first generation of our families to be born as citizens and to be born with rights. So my mother wasn't born a citizen. She was born a ward of the state like every other native was at the time. She was born, you know, where she wouldn't inherit the right to vote. She uh, couldn't have free movement, all that kind of stuff. So we were born as regular citizens, as full citizens. And we grew up with those expectations. And as we saw that earlier generation, like the first mostly post-residential school generation start to push around that didn't have shame beaten into them when they were children, you know, they started to get pushy. They were the activists. They were the, the people doing the blockades and stuff. And that's the environment where we grew up in, where our politics mattered, where we had a national consciousness. The example I think of is when I was a kid, and I went to the smokehouse, which is like the Salish church, 
they would have to explain things to us all the time, even to the adults and the kids. They'd have to say, okay, well, this part of the ceremony, you have to do this. At this part of the ceremony, you have to do that. And they'd have to say why, and they would say, we're trying to bring the tradition back. When I go there now, the kids do it innately. They know that at this part of the ceremony, you have to wash your hands with ice water. At this part, you have to stand back, and at this part, you do this and that. They've grown up in the culture, just like a very deep, rich culture, and they're going to be far more aggressive than we are because they're acting more like naturally themselves. We grew up with a part of that. And because we're now all coming to age, we've all been to university. It's the first generation where we're acting like regular Canadians. And the reason that it might sound like we're noisy or we're loud or something is just because we're filling this gap, this big, silent, dark gap, and suddenly it's full of noise. And, and that might seem you know, chaotic or something, but it's just as noisy as any other part of society. We're just as noisy as Quebecois were in the 60s after being repressed for so long. We're like that generation. The quiet revolution generation wasn't revolutionary. They were being like everybody else. It's just everybody before them was so quiet. Before we end our conversation, I'm just wondering, Robert, can we talk about your cousin James? I suppose. You were tweeting about it recently. Can you run through some of your reflections? Yeah. I mean, that's going to be a potentially at the core of something that I'm going to write soon. There's a thing that Trudeau brought in in the last budget, the Guardian's organization for First Nations people. So they basically reclaim resources and stuff for natives. Uh, anyways, James was one of those. He was like an early prototype of them in the 90s, you know, when that earlier generation just fought and got us back the right to fish. We had always had the right to grab a couple of fish for food, but we were never able to sell it, even though it was the basis of our economy for 10,000 years. So we got that right back. People hated us for it tried to sink our boats. You know, they were led by some reform MP and they attacked us all the time. And so James was one of those people with, you know, a couple dozen others who were recruited to be that guardian force to go on the river to protect our people. And, you know, in the course of his work, he got thrown overboard and, you know, disappeared. Uh, we never found him. The family searched for months and months and months. And... You know, I, I think of that as a good example of so much about Canada and so much about the politics. And even that's part of like what I got so sick of in this country. It's so two-faced. It's so shitty. You know, the person who was behind those organizations that required him to be in a uniform <laughs> became a minister, like was in charge of like bringing Indians before committee and forcing them to grovel before him and answer to him to defend their rights. And he gets a great pension that I pay for disproportionately. And then, you know, you read the press of the day and they talk about our people as the ones who are like terrorists for trying to get our rights back, whereas their people are trying to freaking kill our people by swamping their boats and forcing our guys out there. And the government in its ineptness and their shitty, not giving a shitness of it all cuts budgets. You know, they're funded from our resources they give us a pittance of it, and they fund his force as little as possible. They give him the crappiest boats. They don't provide safety equipment. They don't provide training. They just like, here's a whistle and a badge and go out there and try and stop these goons with giant ships. And because of that, he didn't have the safety equipment to survive. Because of those jerks, he had to be out there on the river in the first place. And, you know, people don't remember him. Like, they called that whole all of us there for fish. They say we wrecked the river. They, they call us scum. But 
it was our resource in the first place. We're named the Stolo. That's the name of the river, too. We're the same damn thing. And it's just outrageous that he actually had to be there. And there's just so much about this country all wrapped into one. And it's those same jerks from back then who were writing and calling our people bad and terrorists for being out there. They're still writing. They're still out there. You know, they got nice pensions and they got like applause when they retired, some of them. It's this whole chummy bonhomie of Canada that I just really freaking hate so much. Anyways, that's uh, what I could say about him. You are so wildly off brand for this moment where we're going to all hug and it's all going to be okay. But how meaningless and superficial would any kind of reconciliation, and I know I heard Jesse Wente make the point, to reconcile, that means you once got along, you know, so even that. Mm. But I have no idea how the stuff that you're pointing out and the anger that you're expressing and and the arguments that you're making get us to a place that is warm and fuzzy. And it's not really a journalist's job or your job to get us to that place. But I can't imagine that place ever existing if we don't listen to this sort of thing, if we don't hear this and deal with it, right? Yeah. I mean, Canadians like to think in a year or five years or 10 years, but natives have a longer time scale. So maybe we don't win in 50 years or 100 years or 200 years, but we'll win eventually. And the only thing that you have to do to make sure that you win as a Native person is to keep your people together long enough and to keep our culture alive and thriving long enough. And that's what matters. That's the only thing that matters. And making our lives better in the meantime, that's important. But solving every issue, making everybody happy and cuddly, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And it doesn't need to. The only thing it needs to is is for us to stay together as a people and to continue working and pushing everything millimeter by millimeter, decade by century until we get there. Robert, thank you very much. Thank you. That's your Canada Land. Hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. We have a Facebook page, like it, and our news stories will show up on your newsfeed. You can also check them out at CanadaLandShow.com. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. There will be a new episode of Commons up this week, and from now on, as mentioned, every Tuesday is Politics Podcast Day from our network. Commons is out this week. Our new show, Oppo, the next. Lather, rinse, repeat. This show was produced by Ali Graham. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Would you ever quit your day job? No. God, no. I love my day job. Come on. Journalism's where the big bucks are. (laughs) Yeah. I have lost so much money on journalism. (laughs) I get paid for it and I lose money at it still. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha